Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, and we'll be looking at Romans 3.27 also. Tonight, I'm striving for more clarity and coherence. When you develop a doctrine, those are the two things you're after, clarity and coherence on this phrase, pistis Christu. Paul's theology is a Christological soteriology. And faith, as we're going to see, I think, more and more clearly with more and more examples, this is one of the primary things we have to look at, one of, the, one of probably three most significant factors in interpreting Paul's gospel is this phrase, pistis Christu, the faithfulness of Christ. So with that in place, let's just take a couple of moments, please, silent preparation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity, and we recognize the mandate in the scripture to make the most of every opportunity. That's what we're here for, that's what we're doing. And we've gathered together for the purpose of encouragement, and may what we receive tonight be truly an encouragement to all of us and many more whom we converse with and live among. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. We've been considering what Paul called a law of faithfulness from Romans 3.27, which we might even title the Torah of faithfulness. And that's a pretty accurate translation of the phrase in Romans 3.27. In this message, I intend to push for further clarity and coherence because if we don't get the Christological slash soteriological realities down in Paul's gospel, we'll never get to the pneumatological, ethical realities of Paul's gospel. And that's very important. There is a strong ethical aspect of the gospel according to Paul. And those ethics are Christocentric and they're pneumatological. That means they're only realized in the power of the Holy Spirit. But it is imperative that we first get down the Christological, soteriological, before we get to the pneumatological, ethical realities in Paul's gospel, which is also, I think, better defined as God's gospel about his son, as we have it in Romans 1, 2 to 4. Now, many times the word namas, this is extremely important, namas for law. Many times Paul is intending Torah, the Old Testament word for law, which has a couple of important meanings. Many times namas in the New Testament is a designation for the Hebrew Torah, especially in Romans and Galatians, where that becomes a a point of antinomy or antithesis between law works or law observance, and the faithfulness of Messiah. So namas can be a word for Torah. Its proper meaning, that is, of Torah, is instruction given by God. The Hebrew verb toroth, from which Torah derives, simply means given by God. And so there is in this word a strong implication of divine authoritativeness or divine authority. 
But it's akin to and virtually equal in many places to a phrase, the word of Yahweh, which means a specifically divine communication or even a revelation. Torah can mean a revelation. And this word of Yahweh means specifically a revelation which emphasizes God's graciousness. So we have the two aspects of God's authority and God's grace. And both of these figure in the gospel, as does his sovereign election. And so it can refer to any divine communication at all. It's often a synonym in the Old Testament of the word of Yahweh, which is Debar Yahweh. And I think a good example of where the two are found, both Torah and Debar, are found with the virtual equality is found in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10. There we have the prophet saying, Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law, which is the teaching, the Torah of our God. Sometimes then that word Torah simply means teaching or sometimes a revelation or a direction. But I think a teaching is one of the best ways to define it. So Isaiah 110, we have these, hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom, give ear unto the Torah of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Incidentally, Isaiah is addressing the rulers of Jerusalem here and calls them the rulers of Sodom. John picked up on that in the book of Revelation 11.8, the city Jerusalem, which he called Sodom and Egypt. And so this is a little bit of sarcasm from the prophet. It happens from time to time. So law or Torah, sadly, really translated namas, which is too general of a term in the New Testament. Probably should have kept the word Torah there. The word can mean simply teaching or even revelation. We have then in Romans 3.27, the radical exclusion of human boasting. Where is boasting then? We've been really honing in on that particular passage. Where is boasting then, says the teacher, the opposing teacher of Paul. Paul says, shut out, radically excluded, exclamation point, gone. The teacher then says, through what kind of Torah, what kind of revelation, what kind of teaching, a Torah of works? Paul says, no, on the contrary, a Torah of faithfulness, a Torah of faithfulness, which is dia, I'll put it to you in the English transliteration, there's no need of always writing in Greek up here, you think I'm showing off or something, I'm not, but. The word here in Romans 3.27, the boasting of man with respect to appropriation of salvation is entirely excluded by a Torah or a law of works. Paul says, Allah, on the contrary, A-L-L-A, dia namu, through a law. Now, this, this shows you something right here. Dia namu, that's a prepositional phrase. The word namas comes out namu. It's the same thing, though. It's the same we're going to find out that pistis, whether it's spelled P-I-S-T-I-S or whether it's spelled P-I-S-T-E-O-S or T-E-O-U-S or piste, P-I-S-T-E-I. The spellings may vary, but the word means the same thing. Fidelity, faithfulness, and on some, some rare occasions, trust 
or belief or faith. Allah dia namu, which again, namu should probably be rendered as with the sense of it being Torah. Then we have pistios. Let me just give you the Greek on this. I do feel like showing off a little bit. Pistios, which would be really this if we did it in English transliteration with a long O. Pistios. By dia namu pistios. Through a law, on the contrary, through a Torah of faithfulness. The Torah, the revelation of the faithfulness that we're going to talk about tonight, excludes boasting on the part of man when it comes to soteriology, which, of course, is salvation. And I'm laying the groundwork here slowly because I'm pushing for clarity and I'm pushing for coherence. A Torah or a revelation of Messiah's faithfulness excludes any human boasting. We could say the story, the narrative of Messiah's faithfulness has no plot in it that involves human boasting at all. If you want to call it a story, Torah story. A Torah or a revelation of Messiah's faithfulness excludes any human boasting. Therefore, I'm saying that we can call the gospel a Torah of faithfulness. The gospel itself can have the definition a Torah of faithfulness, a revelation of faithfulness, not ours, but Messiah's faithfulness, as we're going to see shortly. So it's a revelation of the faithfulness of God's Messiah that we're talking about here, Jesus Christ. This squares with Paul's definition of this being the gospel of God, which is peri, P-E-R-I, about his son. Peri, we could even say, which is all about his son. If it's all about his son, then that gospel excludes you and I from being at the featured front of this announcement. It's the son of God. We're going to get into the warlike aspects of what God is doing right now, and it certainly is not defensive what he's doing. It's an offensive. He's invading the universe, the present age, to rescue humanity and to rescue all of creation from its enslavement to suprahuman powers, including sin, death, principalities and powers, and flesh or the Adamic ontology. Nothing short of that. So then, the gospel is a revelation of the faithfulness of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2, we have a phrase, bear one another's burdens, command, bear one another's burdens, and by so doing, fulfill the law of Messiah. Again, the intent there is the Torah of Messiah, the Torah of Jesus Christ, which, of course, is Messiah's teaching and revelation of love. In James 1.25, we have a reference to looking into the perfect law of liberty. Now, the word there, law, has the sense Torah, especially since James writes to the 12 tribes of Israel that are scattered across the Roman Empire in James 1.1. So in James 1.25, I would translate that perfect law of liberty If we translate teleon or perfect as fulfilled, in keeping with Romans 10.4, Christ is the fulfillment or the end of the law. 
If we translate in James 1.25, perfect as fulfilled and law as Torah, we have this splendid translation, I think. It's an elegant translation. We have the fulfilled Torah of liberty. Another word for the gospel. It's a fulfilled Torah of liberty. It's an announcement of liberation. It's a tetelestai. It's an announcement of liberation that has already been completed. It's an announcement of liberty. The gospel, therefore, is liberational or liberative, if you want to call it that. This correlates in turn with Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.17 to 18, where he speaks of the spirit of the Lord in whose presence there is liberty. And he defines our liberty as the open-faced, which incidentally means bold, open-faced gaze in the mirror of the word. So there's a correlation between 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 and James 1, 25. The spirit of the Lord in whose presence there is liberty and the open-faced freedom that we all have to gaze as in a mirror. That's the mirror of the word where the image of the Lord shines forth. And by that spirit or pneumatologically, By that spirit, or pneumatologically, we are transformed into that same image from glory to glory. By this, we also understand that the gospel, right down the road a little bit from 2 Corinthians 3.18, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the gospel is about the glory of the Christ. The gospel is about liberation, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, And it's about transformation. We all are transformed from one degree of glory to the next as by the spirit of the Lord. So 2 Corinthians 4.4, the gospel is actually described as the gospel of the glory of Christ. And this is the gospel, the very gospel that the minds of unconvinced people, whether believers or not, Unconvinced people are blinded to the gospel of the glory of the Christ, a glory which God intends to be universal. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. Very close to Romans' key verse. The key verse in Romans is the prophetic text from Habakkuk 2, 4. We're going to see that in a moment. So, it's about liberation from enslavement to the, to the powers of sin and death and superhuman powers called principalities and powers and from the flesh, which is the human existence in Adam. Human existence in Adam is irredeemable. So we put off the old man altogether. We put on the new man, who we already are, the new person. And I would argue, this is a side thing, but I think it's going to come into prominence soon. I would argue that James' epistle is not arguing with Paul, but he's arguing against the notion of justification by faith, which is not from Paul. Paul doesn't speak of an individual's justification by personal faith. He speaks of the justification or the gift of life to all humanity through the faithfulness of of Jesus Christ. And so James isn't arguing with Paul 
I think James, in fact, is putting down, as far as justification goes, as far as salvation goes, he's putting down both justification by faith and justification by works so that he can point to a fulfilled law of liberty, a fulfilled Torah of freedom in which God has reconciled the world in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.19. So I would argue that James is not arguing with Paul in his epistle, like Luther thought, but he's actually arguing against the notion of justification by faith, which Luther actually favored. So that's why he called James a right straw-y epistle, an epistle of straw, and he kind of rejected it. Luther also had some bad things to say about Jews and papists, Catholics and Jews. It made him a little slanted toward anti-Semitism. And that's because there has been, and we're going to show this very clearly, in Romans and Galatians, Paul is not being anti-Jewish. He's not being anti-Judaism at all, as people assume that he is. He's not. And we'll show that he has a very sympathetic view of Judaism, but that he also views Judaism and his time in Judaism as belonging to the first creation. It's impossible for us to be male and female in Christ. And that doesn't mean that we don't have genders in Galatians 3.28. It doesn't even indicate that we may be confused about our gender. Gender confusion seems to be a deep problem nowadays. But... It means that we can't be of the first creation when God initially created them male and female. Male and female, he created them. That's simply a reference to the Adamic creation. So that we can no longer be male and female in Galatians 3.28 simply refers to we can no longer be attached to the first creation at all. And so we can't be slave or free, and we can't be Scythian or barbarian, or we can't be Jew or Gentile. We can't be any of these things. They all belong to the first creation. The new creation is something spectacularly new, fresh. And if any person is in Christ, new creation. It is not circumcision or uncircumcision that means anything or that avails anything, but a new creation. Galatians 6.15. So by all of these accounts and all of these considerations, we may also describe the gospel of God about his son, Romans 1, 2, and 3, as a Torah or a revelation of freedom. It was for freedom that Christ manumitted you. Therefore, stand fast and do not be ever entangled again with any yoke of enslavement, whether it's to the Adamic ontology or the flesh, whether it's to the present age, which is evil in Galatians 1, 4, the present evil age from which God is rescuing us through Jesus Christ, or whether it is to principalities and powers or the desires of the flesh or any habit or addiction that controls us. We're not enslaved to any of those yokes of slavery, or to Torah of works, a gospel that proposes that we are justified by a comprehensive following of Torah's commands in the Old Testament. To know God's Son, therefore, is to be free indeed. In John 8, 
31, Jesus gives the stipulation for discipleship. If you continue in my word, which is what you're doing here tonight, I think, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall, as a result of continuing in my word, know the truth. You know what truth is? It's the coherent and clear reality of God's veracity in Jesus Christ. You shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth will liberate you. The gospel, which is the word of truth about our salvation, is a liberating one. So I've said before, I'm now a liberation theologian. Not because of the political liberation, like Latin American liberation theology. I'm talking about a liberation from superhuman enslaving powers from which we have been delivered. Those superhuman powers are capital S, sin, capital D, death, principalities and powers, and the Adamic ontology called flesh, including all of its misplaced, self-destructive desires. There's where we're going to get into ethics, but I've got to make the salvational part of this be clear first before we make the ethical part of the gospel clear. It's, it, in one sense, it's just as important to the coherence and clarity of the gospel itself. So I'm saying this to draw our attention once again to that phrase in Romans 3.27, the Torah of faithfulness in Romans and elsewhere in Paul's epistles. Remember the series that we're in now is called Better Call Paul. And we have the number, and Ricky, don't lose that number. <laughs> Speaking to myself, too. My whole family calls, still calls me Ricky. I mean, I'm pushing 70 with a truck, and they're still calling me Ricky, but that's okay. Anyways... So God says to me, Ricky, don't lose that number. Whose number? Paul's number. One, two, three, five, 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 five. Uh, hey, Paul, what do you think about this phrase, Pistis Christu, the faith of Christ? Is it faith in Christ on my behalf, on my part, or is it the faithfulness of Christ to our benefit? So all of this ties in this phrase, which tonight's message will be entitled that, incidentally, the Torah of faithfulness. All this ties in with what we call the subjective genitive. Now, this is all teaching tonight. I have to do this. I won't apologize for it because I'm looking for what? Clarity and coherence. The subjective genitive. I first encountered this in the phrase pistis Christu. The faith in or faith of Christ. Which one is it? There's been a debate going on for several decades now. And... There's a strong leaning toward the subject of genitive, and I'll explain it in a moment. I first encountered this, and some of you might even remember that have been with me for a half a century or so or whatever. I first encountered this in Daniel B. Wallace, his book called Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, written in 1996, especially on page 114 to 116. He cited possible and, quote, exegetically significant examples of this phrase, the pistis Christu, if, you, if you're attached to the theological community, the academic community, which I try to, I'm trying to bridge the gap between the academy and the church, which is usually a 150-year gap, and sadly. So many of the discoveries and insights of theologians are held off for a 100 years or a century, and I'm trying to make that, compress that time period. There's been a debate in this pistis Christu, and Daniel Wallace, who's a pretty conservative 
scholar first brought it up. He cited possible significant examples in Romans 3.22, where it talks about the righteousness of God, dia pistios Jesu Christu. Romans 3.22, dia pistios, I'll show off again, dia pistios Jesu Christu. Diapistios Jesu Christu, the faith through the faith of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. Is it faith of Jesus Christ, subjective genitive, or is it faith in Jesus Christ where he's the object of the faith of the individual? Well, if there's no boasting, well, we've got to lean one way or another. He uses also, and you might want to look these verses up yourself, Romans 3.22 as an example of Pistis Christu. Also, Philippians 3.9, where Paul says, having no righteousness of my own, which is of the law, ek namu, Allah, tain dia pistios, same again. Allah, tain dia pistios Christu, but rather the righteousness It comes from my faith in Christ or Christ's faithfulness. I think you know where I lean on this. And I think the academic academic community of the theologians and the Holy Spirit's direction of them is leaning one way or the other also. Wallace also includes Ephesians 3.12. And I just have the Greek here in which he says we have access with confidence into or through dia tes pistios. Again, dia tes pistios. The faithfulness. It, it takes on an article many times where this word tes is used, and it means the faithfulness. It's, it's pointing the finger to a specific faithfulness. And I believe it's the faithfulness of one faithful Jew who is also the Jewish Messiah, whose name is Jesus Christ, who has both divinity in its fullness, and in him is the fullness of divinity bodily and humanity, and who has died and has arisen from the dead, has been ascended into the highest ultimate height and seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's who I believe the faithfulness belongs to. So Ephesians 3.12, normally we don't think of this. We have access with confidence through the faithfulness of him, autu, dia pistios, dia tes pistios, autu. That's a singular, so it's the faithfulness of him. That becomes pretty clear that we're talking about our access to the Father is through the faithfulness of another, Jesus Christ, not our own faith. Wallace also adds Romans 3.26, the faithfulness of Jesus Galatians 2.16, where it's used twice. We've looked at that before. Galatians 2.20, I was crucified with Christ, said Paul, recognizing that the Spirit incorporates us into the downward trajectory of Jesus Christ, his death, crucifixion, burial, and also incorporates us at the same time into the upward trajectory of Jesus Christ, resurrection, ascension, enthronement seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I was crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live, and yet it is not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, 
not the Adamic ontology, but this body, this mortal body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. The faithfulness of the Son of God. In that faithfulness, he loved me and gave himself for me. That faithfulness, in other words, is an obedience to the Father. What is he obeying? He's obeying the Father's will to save humanity and all creation. That's what he's obeying. And so God loved the world so much, this Jewish teacher that Paul's antagonistic with in Rome and Galatia would say that God loved the world so much that he gave the Torah. But we know in John 3.16, God loved the world so much that he gave his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And while we were yet hostile to the very love that gave the son, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly, for the sinner. Therefore, being justified or rescued by his blood, how much more will we be saved by his life? Can't wait to get that in Romans 5. That's when the gospel gets unchained from all its traditional and contractual interpretations. Now, Wallace, and also Galatians 3.22, we're going to get to all these eventually, not tonight. Wallace essentially argues for the subjective genitive in all these cases, over and against commentaries, which he says the renderings of those commentaries, he suggests, are, quote, probably a Lutheran reflex from the Reformation, the reflex that... Well, all these terms, pistis Christu, they almost mean faith in Christ because they already have this idea that justification is a forensic or judicial imputation of righteousness on the occasion of the sinner's faith in Christ. Now, I used to believe that and teach that. This is a dramatic change for me. It's what we might call a development. And I still use that analogy where you're on a certain level on a mountain and you look down and you see a certain view. You have a horizon. You, you have before you a horizon because of a standpoint. But when the Lord says in Luke 14, friend, come up higher, you go up higher, you look down, you get a different horizon. And once you get to the peak of that mountain, you see a universal horizon of redemption. And that's where we're starting to get. The second analogy is Ezekiel 47, where God calls the prophet the son of man actually out on a sandbar calls the prophet and the prophet goes into the river up to his ankles first then it covers his knees then it covers his loins and then he gets caught up in the current and taken away and that's where I feel I've been getting in the past few months getting in the current and saying to others come on in the water's fine even though it's a little riley and chaotic sometimes And of course, there's no small resistance to this rendition of the gospel, which I believe is Pauline. After all, I have called him. And I want you to see, and it's fair for you to see, my my pastoral thoroughness here is very important to me, because I want you to see this clearly. So, again, Daniel B. Wallace, though he didn't attempt to, quote, decide the issue, as he says on page 115, he concludes his treatment of the subjective genitive by saying this. And this is interesting because we're talking about a conservative grammatical theologian or grammatist who believes in basically a justification by faith as far as I can tell. 
So it's significant that he says this, quote, although the issue is not to be settled via grammar, I agree, it has to be settled through usage, context, overarching context, etc. Although the issue is not to be settled but via grammar, on balance, grammatical considerations seem to be in favor of the subjective genitive view, therefore the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we're talking about something that's not bizarre to us. It's not something that's so-called liberal theology. It is, this is conservative theology that recognizes the grammatical scales are weighted heavily on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But he also adds this caveat. The faith or faithfulness of Christ is not a denial of faith in Christ. I agree with that. We have faith in Christ. But I do not say... Let me say this very clearly. I would not say that it is not a denial of the Lutheran or the justification by faith theory. There is faith in Christ. We have it. But it's not the means of appropriating salvation. It's rather a certain gifted participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God by Paul's gospel. Don't worry, Paul was, in, he was charged with being a renegade. He was even charged with something that sounds very familiar to me. He left this particular teacher's emphasis. He left this particular affiliation's emphasis. Sound familiar, George? <laughs> he left. They said, yeah, he was once a student of the apostles in Jerusalem, but then he went off the grid, he went off the reservation. He became a renegade, and his gospel is heretical. It denies the law of Moses. It denies Judaism. It denies all of these things about Torah. And so the teachers came into Galatia and caused a defection of two or three churches in northern Turkey, not southern Turkey, but northern Turkey, including Ankara and a couple other cities. So you know what Paul did? Paul's instructors, who were overwhelmed by these teachers and kind of thrown out, they went back to Paul, who was in Achaia or Macedonia laboring, and they told him what happened, and he said, oh, really? And he started to steam. You could see the steam coming out of his ears. I know that I called him. He said the steam was coming out of me. And he dictated what we now know as Galatians, and he sent it back with these instructors, catechetical instructors that he left in Galatia, And he said, go back, assemble these three churches together, sit down and read this. And what they did was they would read it with drama and they would present it with dramatic emphasis and they would use Paul's cadence and Paul's disposition and all of Paul's little foibles that he had in his speech and they would understand. And he ripped these teachers up one side and down another. And he presented a gospel in which God is viewed as an invading omnipotent power into this age instigating a universal human rescue and a universal creational rescue of everything from the grip of this present evil age and that it's done that's what Galatians is all about and there's one commentary that I would recommend in Galatians above all others and it's by J. Lewis Martin M-A-R-T-Y-N And it's from the Yale Anchor Bible series. Now, I got off the base a little bit here. One more thing. 
Pistis for faith or trust or faithfulness or fidelity is the same. This word in the Greek is the same. No matter if you spell it, pistis or pistios or piste. Again, I want you to notice this because if you study it out on your own, as you are, some of you, and I think that's great, whether it's P-I-S-T-E-O-S, P-E-I-S-T-E-O-U-S, or P-I-S-T-E-I, the spelling varies in the Greek. When the word pistis is used, for example, in a nominative case where it's used as the subject, faith, says the scripture, is the assurance of things hoped for. It's not the appropriation of salvation. It's the assurance of things hoped for. Faith there, pistis, it's in a nominative case or a subject, so it's spelled P-I-S-T-I-S. But when it's used in other cases or in other constructions, it changes its spelling. That's just the way the Greek is. In a genitive case, it's P-I-S-T-E-O-S, as in Ephesians 3.12. Or in accusative case, it's P-I-S-T-I-N, as in Romans 1.17. Don't let it confuse you. I'm giving you a simplification here. In all these spellings, it means the same thing. Pistis. And if you study the semantic scope of all the meanings of pistis, you have faith, you have trust, you have fidelity or faithfulness. And it's in the subjective genitive. It's always having to do with fidelity or faithfulness. And when it's of Christ, it means the faithfulness or the fidelity of Jesus Christ. My testimony is that I have been saved by grace, God's sheer grace through faithfulness, not mine, but Messiah's. And it's strange because I actually believe that. That changes the whole order of things for people and it gets people a little upset, which is pretty much the norm. The spelling varies then when it's used as as a nominative, a genitive, an accusative. Now we're ready to consider Paul's gospel as a Torah of Messiah's faithfulness. And here comes another analogy by rounding up some strays. It's a cowboy analogy. Rounding up some stray verses in Paul that employ this phrase, Pistis Christu, in the Pauline epistles. I'm going to begin with Romans 1.17. Since this is where Paul explicitly, very strongly, in Romans 1.17, he gives the thesis statement of his gospel. In Romans 1.17, followed by 1.18-32, which isn't Paul talking. That is a parody of a speech by the opposing teacher. Who's, Paul says, the righteousness of God, which is the saving act of God in Christ, which is the right thing for the king to do for his people and his land, The saving act of God in Christ is being apocalyptically revealed, apocalypto, apocalypto, or apocalypto, apocalypto. The accents drive me crazy. But then the teacher comes along and says, no, the wrath of God, the retributive wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, not from God, but from heaven. They don't even want to mention God's name, you see. It's a circumlocution. Let's just talk about from heaven. And he never mentions Christ, and he never mentions God, but he mentions some kind of responsibility that man, the pagan, has by looking up into the sky. He's not only supposed to recognize the 
eternity and infinity and power of God by looking at creation. And we do get some hints of that. But he's also supposed to recognize ethics from it. And so because he doesn't, he doesn't become thankful, then God hands him over to whatever it is in Romans 1, 24, 26, 28. That's not Paul. So in Romans 1, 17, Paul, who started in 1, 16, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I, I, I'm not ashamed of this one. It's the true gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, whether Jew or pagan. I use the word pagan because it reveals, it accentuates the scandal of Paul's mission to the heathen, the pagans. For therein, says Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is apocalyptically disclosed. The righteousness of God, defined in Psalm 98, means the king's righteous act of rescuing his people. So it's the saving act of God in Christ is revealed, ek pistios, from faithfulness, ace piston, to faithfulness. God's saving act in Christ is revealed from faithfulness. Whose? We'll find out in one second or two. To faithfulness. It's the faithfulness of Messiah, and it goes into the faithfulness of the church who participates in his faithfulness. Does Messiah's faithfulness continue? Well, Paul said, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. So it must continue where? In the corporate Christ, the church. So in Romans 1.17, he goes on to explain, he makes faithfulness explicitly to be that of Christ. Because he says, just as it is written, authoritatively written where? In Torah, in the prophets, in the Nebi'im of the scriptures. He cites Habakkuk 2.4, just as it stands written, the righteous one. I know we've looked at this before, but tonight is toward clarity and coherence by repetition. The righteous one will live out from faithfulness. Ek pistios. Ek pistios. The righteous one will live out from faithfulness. Who is the righteous one? I'm going to show you and prove to you that it's Jesus Christ. He lives, he will live, said the prophet, meaning he will be resurrected out from his faithfulness as a result of his faithful obedience to the Father's intent to invade this space called the present age and to rescue humanity in toto, and to rescue creation in totality, in obedience to that intention of God, Jesus Christ was faithful to the extent of death. And because of his faithfulness, ek pistios, he will live, be resurrected. The faithfulness here is then explicitly stated to be that of a person called the righteous one. My translation capitalizes R for righteous and one O-N-E. I guess we're hitting fourth gear here. First, in keeping with Romans 1, 2, B, the second part of Romans 1, 2, through 4, 
that this gospel is about God's son whom God raised from the dead. Romans 117 is referring to that resurrection of God's son in answer to his son's faithfulness. Our salvation is due to a faithfulness which God answered by resurrection, not through our faith, which God answers by raising us from the dead. And when Christ was raised from the dead, so was all creation, and so was all humanity. Second, in keeping with this and with the scriptures as a whole, the righteous one must emphatically be interpreted as Jesus Christ. Not as a generic person, any old person who believes for justification. But it must be interpreted as Jesus Christ, who is faithful unto death. It is not referring to a generic person, individual, who is so-called justified by faith. What I'm saying to you is that we are not justified by our faith in Christ. We are justified or rescued unconditionally by God's love by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. There's no mediator between God and man. To say that my faith rescues me or justifies me is to say that there's another mediator between God and man but besides the man, Christ Jesus, and his faithfulness. What's the mediator? My faith. Where's the boasting then? My faith. But God has excluded boasting through a law, a Torah of faithfulness. Listen carefully. Write these down if you're of a mind to. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. The righteous one for the unrighteous. Christ. It says it right there in 1 Peter 3.18, that he might bring us to God. For Christ also suffered for the sins once for all, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, which is the, all the rest of humanity. So I've italicized Christ and the righteous one, because Christ is the righteous one. My righteous one will live. Who's my righteous one? Who's the righteous one? Jesus Christ in Romans 1.17. You see, all the... Faith in Christ or pistis Christus have to be construed or interpreted as Christocentric. It's all about Jesus Christ here. It's all about him. Once we were accused by someone who went to another church and they said, why don't you go to that church anymore? And the person actually said they depend too much on Jesus Christ over there. Thanks for the backhanded compliment. (laughs) In this verse, Christ is explicitly identified as the righteous one. And in 1 Peter 3.18, we have an allusion to another famous passage called Isaiah 53.11, in which Yahweh says, my righteous servant, speaking of Jesus Christ, my righteous servant will justify many. Paul interprets that many as all, as we know in Romans 5.18. As we've considered, even in the Rev the Book study, the considerable weight of this verse in Romans 5.18 reads, Through one righteous act, there is justification of life for everyone. That's the heart of the matter right there. Romans 5.18. 
for Valentine's Day, put a heart around that verse and slap it on your fridge. Incidentally, Luther loved Galatians so much that he named it after his espoused wife. He called it by the name of whatever, I can't remember what her name was. But he, he loved Galatians so much, he named Galatians his wife's name. Never mind, that's, that's my Valentine's Day sermon. So it is notable here that justification is also known as life. The justification, a.k.a. life, life for everyone. In Christ, all will be made alive, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It comes not through the faith of each individual, but through the righteous act, also known as, a.k.a. the faithfulness or the obedience of one, i.e., Jesus Christ. Psalm 34, 19. Many adversities come to the one who is righteous, Ton Dikaion, the righteous one. Would you say that many afflictions came to Jesus Christ? But the Lord, Yahweh, that would be the Father, delivers him from them all. Jesus Christ then was saved out of death by his faithfulness. If there's anybody that was justified by faithfulness, it was Jesus Christ. He was saved out of those many afflictions by the Father when the Father raised him from the dead. He was put to death in the Spirit, but raised to life, made alive in the Spirit, as 1 Peter 3 goes on to say. How about this one? In Psalm 34, 19, many adversities come to the righteous one, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's a pro- that is a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That this is Christological, or speaking specifically of Christ, is evident from the very next verse in Psalm 34, 20. He protects all his bones. That's the bones that are protected in the sacrificial lamb. Not one of them is broken. Who is that speaking of? In John 19, 36, the inspired beloved disciple applies this explicitly to the crucified Jesus. And they did not break his legs as is the custom in the crucifragium, which they would come by and break the legs so they could go spend their weekend after all these guys were dead. They didn't have to do that. He was already dead. So John 19.36, Psalm 34, 19 and 20 then, is explicitly to the crucified Jesus, and therefore Jesus is the one who is also delivered via resurrection. He was handed over for our sins but raised up for our justification, says Romans 4.25. See, it takes a lot of work to make this clear. Psalm 141.5a says this, let the righteous one strike me. The righteous one has struck me a few times. Hey, yes, Lord, you're wrong about this thing. Justification by faith. What? This can't be God. It has to be the devil. It's justification by my faithfulness. Well, the righteous just smote me, struck me, struck me upside the head. But it says, let the righteous one strike me. It is an act of faithful love. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. I'm speaking to you because I have been struck by the righteous one. Isaiah 24, 16a says, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs The splendor of the righteous one is the name of the song we hear. The glory of the righteous one. The songs that are going to be throughout the whole earth. 
Isaiah 24:16a. On top of this, one that we don't usually consider is Zechariah 9:9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And again, there is Stephen's sermon in Acts 7.52. And I'm winding, I'm winding down to the very end here. Acts 7.52. I'm giving you verses that identify the righteous one as Jesus Christ, not some generic person who has faith in Christ, but the righteous one whose faithfulness saves. All of creation, all of humanity. All of creation is waiting for this liberation. Why? They're not waiting in vain, are they? All of creation, they're groaning. So are we. We're groaning for deliverance from this body, from this enslaving ontology. You see, this is what has to happen for Christians. They might like living in this world until they are transferred into Christ. And then they realize they've got their foot in two different worlds. They're at the juncture of two ages. And therefore, they want to go to the next age so bad that they're sick, they don't want to live anymore. But I'm saying to you, what we do is being transferred into Christ with our foot in both ages. Keep on living in the battle. Don't quit the battle. Stay in the fight. You'll win when all is said and done. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with the belt of truth, coherence, and clarity in Christ, your breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the combat boots of the gospel of peace, the sword of the spirit, and above all, the shield of Christ's faithfulness, whereby you will be able to quench all the fiery missiles of the evil one. Because believe me, of all people, of all persons, rather, he's the one that resists this gospel and chooses to veil it when God chooses to disclose it. There's too many preachers making salaries, though, that have to, com- have to compromise this gospel and with affiliations. And you have people say, well, who are you accountable to? I've been accountable to pastors. I've been accountable to mentors in the past. Now I am the servant of Jesus Christ in Galatians 1.10. I'm accountable to him. I'm free from affiliations of men from the traditions of men, from their contractual construals, and I'm free to be led by the Spirit, as you are too and should be. I love this. Stephen says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The mystery is that the very favored people of God called Israel don't believe the gospel. It's a mystery. Paul explains it in Romans 9 to 11. It's because God wants to imprison both pagans and Jews in disobedience so that he can have mercy on all of them. So all Israel will be saved in Romans eleven twenty six and Romans eleven thirty two. So we got all this together. We've seen that before and we will again. So Stephen is right, though. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Stephen explains, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You just killed the righteous one. It is notable that these words were followed by Stephen seeing heaven opened and the son of man, also known as the righteous one, Hebrew Zadik, in Psalm thirty-four nineteen, whom they had put to death, standing at the right hand of God. 
Again, in Acts 22:14, right after Paul's Damascus Road experience, Ananias interpreted this event to Paul by saying, quote, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a word from his mouth. Who's the righteous one that Paul saw and whom Paul heard? Could he be the person who, when he saw him, said, I am Jesus, you know, the one you're persecuting? That's how it should be translated in Acts 22.8. The righteous one is Jesus. But the most definitive verse of all to me is 1 John 2.1b. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There it says it, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It goes on to say, after this compact, clear, and coherent identification of the righteous one as Jesus Christ, John goes on to say, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. The whole world, the whole world. First John 2, 2. So the righteous one in all these verses, and this is closing, and especially Habakkuk 2, 4, cited in Paul's Gospels thesis statement, in Romans 1, 17, that righteous one is Jesus Christ. It is, therefore, I'm preaching the gospel now, it is therefore his fidelity or faithfulness that is accentuated in Paul's gospel. And we might conclude this increment by saying that this is entirely in accord with Revelation 19.10, that the essence of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And in accord with the Lord's own words about the Torah, the Psalms, the prophets, and the writings, The risen Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it accords with Jesus' words in John 5.39, you pour over the scriptures, he said to the legalistic Pharisees and scribes and the hypocrites, you pour over the scriptures because you think You have eternal life in them. You think Torah is the embodiment of the truth when I am the embodiment of truth. I'm what Torah is talking about. They testify about me. So the scriptures in Toto, to to give an inclusio from the beginning to the end, the scriptures in Toto, in their totality, operate as a testimony of the righteous one. And the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness through the righteous one's faithfulness. We have yet to round up some stray verses in Paul's corpus, which also speak of Pistis Christu. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow night. Maybe. And this will yield more clarity and coherence in the doctrine. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. It's just such a privilege to look into the perfect, law, the fulfilled Torah of freedom. The more we see the true nature of the gospel, the more we actually experience a liberation, the more we undergo a transformation, the more we see that the ethics which the gospel requires of us are a result of not our power or our might, but by the spirit says the Lord. The more we see that our faith 
is now a participated faithfulness with Messiah. The more we see that we have been incorporated into the trajectory of Jesus Christ downward and upward, the more we're able to boast in our difficulties in this life because they are the very sign of our participation in bodily resurrection and glory. For these things, all these things, we thank you. And for the privilege of offering to you a sacrifice of substance only acceptable through free, hilarious willingness. We present this to you, Father, that this gospel may go forward without cost to any and all who will hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.